and employers like these splits. Certainly, divisions, and especially by race and by gender and by part of the world, are really critical cleavages within the working class. But they have to be overcome if the working class is to change the world, that's for sure. That's Michael Yates, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Michael Yates on the working class. Warren Buffett, the much-admired genius investor and one of the world's richest men, said, There's class warfare, all right, but it's my class, the rich class, that's making war, and we're winning. Unquote. And who are the losers? The working class, people who work for an hourly wage or are salaried. The ruling class has driven down wages and benefits, smashed unions, and cut programs that protect the disadvantaged. All of this at a time when income and wealth inequality has reached historic extremes. Who's to blame? In a classic example of divide and rule, immigrants are demonized and scapegoated. It's all their fault, not the bosses and CEOs who make oodles of money. Can the working class, long taken for granted by the Democratic Party, be a force for positive progressive change? How might it overcome its own internal divisions and contradictions? To talk about the working class is my guest, Michael Yates. He's editorial director of the Monthly Review Press, and he was a labor educator for more than three decades. He's the author of Why Unions Matter and Can the Working Class Change the World. I talked with him in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to the program. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here. Howard Zinn, the great radical historian, once said, class is not just a room in a school building. Define working class. Well, defining the working class might be more difficult than than you'd think. But we can start with by saying that in a broad sense, we're talking about people that work for wages. So that if you were to look at the United States, say, and you looked at the most recent statistics, you would find that there were about 157 million employed people. But this includes a lot of supervisory personnel, top corporate officials, accountants, lawyers, etc. So if you took a narrow definition and you said non-supervisory workers, we'd have about 70% of that, be about 110 million workers, just speaking for for the United States. Now, in addition... At any given time, there are going to be millions in the United States of unemployed workers. Now, these have to be considered part of the working class because to be defined as unemployed, you have to be looking for work. So we're going to include those. Uh, In the United States, people less than 16 are excluded by definition. But in the United States, there are probably at least a half a million child laborers. So we have to include them as part of the working class. I would also include people that are probably going to be excluded from the count who who work in, say, the informal sector of the economy. There are a lot of undocumented uh, immigrants into the United States, and they're probably going to escape the count, but they're surely members of the working class. And finally, I think we would have to include what I call reproductive labor, mostly done by women who do things that prepare the next generation of workers. And if they don't themselves work for wages, I think they still have to be considered part of the working class because they might have grievance sufficient enough to make them want to change the world too. And are all blue-collar workers um, engaged in manual labor? Oh, certainly. Not well, they might not all be engaged in 
direct manual labor, but most of them are, so they certainly members of the working class. But there are a lot of so-called white-collar workers uh, like me. I was a teacher for a long time, so I certainly was a member of the working class. If I could say one thing, the labor force globally is about 3.5 billion people. But if we look at the globally, we have to consider the great importance of informal sector workers, that is, people that don't have regular contracts with employers who might be selling things in the streets as independent contractors, so to speak, lottery tickets, uh, food products, and and that kind of thing. A lot of workers work at home, like garment workers. Uh, There's a really good example from India. There are 5 million beady workers, that is, people that make cheap cigarettes and cigars, sometimes in shops, sometimes in their homes. So this informal sector is critically important in the world. There are probably at least a billion informal sector uh, workers. And and if you look at things globally, and here I take a stand that probably differs from some others, I would include most peasants as part of the, if not part of the working class, potential allies. And if you look at peasants, there aren't very many in the United States, you know, small farmers uh, eking out a living, facing land thefts and all kinds of problems, just like workers face, except different kinds of problems, uh, and often engaged in rebellions. There may be at least two billion peasants. So Globally, the working class is a very large entity, and it's growing. Capitalism, you say, is a social system built upon exploitation and expropriation. What are its essential features? If you look at the uh, capitalist economy, I see it as having certain fundamental uh, features. First of all, production is for the market, for profit, not directly for use. If, if there's no profit to be made, it doesn't matter if there's use or need, things won't be produced. So that's number one. Second, the means of production, that is the, the land, the raw materials, the buildings, machines, etc., are privately owned in capitalist economies and always by a tiny minority of persons. The masses of people do not own the means of production, and therefore the third feature of capitalism is is that people have to work for others for a living. They become wage workers because that's the only way they can get access to those means of production, which we all have to have to survive. In other words, if we don't have access to land in one way or another, we can't eat. Now, we get access to the land by working for somebody and buying food. So those are what I think of as as kind of the three essential features of capitalist uh, economies. Uh, Also, this system is an expansionary system. It's built upon exploitation of wage labor. And what I I mean by that, I don't mean that a whip is being cracked over people's heads like uh, with slaves, that they're compelled to work. But the exploitation takes place in a more subtle way. That is, people are in effect compelled to work because of the need to work, to live, they're compelled to work hours greater than the hours it would take to produce the things that necessary for their survival. This is called surplus output. It's based upon the surplus labor time that employers are able to compel from them because they have what the workers need. They're a minority. They own things. Other people have to work for them. So employers are able to, in effect, extract a surplus from their labor, and that's what I mean by exploitation. Now, expropriation which actually precedes the the, uh, exploitation in the history of capitalism, involves the taking of something. We all need to appropriate nature, for example. 
but that's a that's that's what human beings have to do and have always done but expropriation means that the land is taken that doesn't belong to you and the history of capitalism sort of begins with the taking of the land of peasants their expropriation by force and then peasants are compelled to be wage laborers in order to live where they become unemployed and live as best they can so the two the expropriation there the expropriation of the land and the exploitation of wage labor interact with one another that is land is taken peasants are expropriated they become lab- wage laborers so that they can be exploited their exploitation allows more land to be expropriated etc uh, uh, expropriation also, also takes the form of expropriating bodies. That is to say, the history of capitalism is tied very intimately to slavery, to the expropriation of black bodies. And quite literally, in fact, when uh, female slaves are used to produce more slaves, which is is, is quite uh, quite remarkable, slavery helped to build the United States. So slavery produces a great surplus for the slave owners as they sell cotton, for example. Uh, That money uh, is then used to buy other means of production or to support industry in the north of the United States, which allows for more uh, exploitation of workers, so they interact. So there's both exploitation in workplaces and expropriation, expropriation of land, bodies, nature, etc., and these two things interact, and that's what I mean by saying that capitalism is a system built upon exploitation and expropriation. In uh, 1941, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis reportedly said, we may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. Talk about the relationship between this capitalist system and democracy. Well, the great myth is that is that capitalism means democracy. If, if you look at people like uh, Milton Friedman, he he and his wife wrote a, Rose wrote a book called "Free to Choose." So we're free to buy what we want. We have consumer sovereignty, and they they presume that that's democracy, that that's true freedom. But the reality of the matter is, if you considered any workplace, if you asked, as I always ask my students, were the relations in your workplace like in a hierarchy? where power flowed from the top to the bottom, from your bosses to you, or were they egalitarian, where everybody related to one another as equals? Well, of course, there's not a person in the classroom that would say that the relations of production in their workplaces, no matter what the workplace was, was egalitarian. It was hierarchical. It was not democratic. And so there's no democracy in any workplace. And we spend a good deal of our lives at work, and that's fundamentally undemocratic. So sure, we get to vote for president. But that's a pretty weak tea kind of democracy. In terms of uh, inequality today, it's way beyond the Gilded Age of the 1890s. Uh, The uber-rich in those days look like relative pikers compared to, uh, as you write, the three wealthiest people in the United States, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, now own more wealth than the entire bottom half of the population, a total of 160 million people. According to the Institute for Policy Studies, the three wealthiest families in the country, the Waltons of Walmart, the Cokes of Coke Industries, and the Mars of Mars Chocolate, own a combined $350 billion. Since 1982, their wealth has skyrocketed nearly 6,000%. What steps must be taken to rectify this grotesque inequality? Well, I would just say, first of all, that 
inequality like that is kind of the default position of capitalist economies. That is, unless there, unless there are countervailing powers within the capitalist system, and by countervailing powers I mean the powers of working people. As capitalism develops, as, as people start to see that they are treated as costs of production, used primarily to make money for others, as they see that there's an assault on the commons, as there's an assault on the we that was so common to people, they begin to think that if they act collectively, they could bring about some changes. And so they form primarily labor organizations like unions and political organizations, political parties, etc., to countervail the power of capital. Now, when that happens, inequality will go down. That is, the power of those that own the means of production is, is still fundamentally maintained, but it's weakened. And you can sometimes use the state, the government, to, 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 uh, to bring about change. But since the 1970s in the United States, for example, the power of capital has increased, the power of labor has decreased. Now, there are all kinds of reasons for that. First of all, capital starts to become more global. Threats can be made to move factories and that sort of thing. The labor unions themselves have become extraordinarily bureaucratic, uh, participating in labor cooperation schemes with employers and so on, so that the time was ripe for a, an increase in the power of capital. Also in the 1970s, you start to see declining profit margins as competition with other countries starts to heat up, and the United States no longer dominates the world as it once did. So the power of the capital increased, the power of labor decreased, and the result has been an unconscionable, remarkable increase in inequality. And unless there is a countervailing power, unless the working class becomes more united, unless there are assaults made upon the power of capital, then this is going to continue, and it's only going to get worse, as we're seeing all the time now. I mean, we have a, we have a president, <laughs> President Trump, who, who, is, who is himself a very ruthless capitalist. All the bad features that capitalists might have, he personifies them in extremists, you might say. And this, if this continues, this inequality is only going to increase. It's only going to get worse uh, with disastrous results, really, because one of the things people don't understand is this rise in inequality is bad for people's health. It's bad for working people's health. It has all kind of deleterious impacts in and of itself. You, you make a really good point there when you talk about this inequality. It's not going to change unless there's power to attack those that are responsible for this increase in inequality. But there certainly can be no democracy with this kind of inequality. That's, a, that's just a matter of obvious fact, it seems to me. For years I've been hearing speeches, reading articles and books, you probably as well, with the theme, Capitalism in Crisis. Uh, the economic landscape is littered with booms and busts. But what accounts for the resilience of capitalism? Well, the resilience is based upon the ownership of those means of production. As long as, 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 long as those stay intact, uh, and besides that, the money that capital has is used to, to, to dominate the institutions that help to reproduce the system. For example, the state, the government itself, is a primary reproducer of the system. That is, it enhances the ability of capital to accumulate, to grow and expand through tax breaks, through land grants, through uh, weak regulation and, and all sorts of things. In addition to which, the power of capital is, is reflected in the media. The media are, are owned by capital. Um, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post for the love of Pete. 
Uh, those are those are the the media are are, are primary uh, reproducers of the system in the sense that they reproduce that I ideology for the most part. And as capital becomes more powerful, richer, more as things become more equal, then of course that dominance increases. Even if you look out locally, uh, who's going to dominate your school systems? Who's going to dominate the boards of directors of colleges and universities? The, those help to reproduce the system. They help to produce the next labor forces. So. Uh, for all of these reasons, and, and in addition to which, capital starts local, becomes national, becomes global, starts to infiltrate every part of the globe and every part of our lives. And so it can move around a lot more freely now than it did in the past as its power has increased. Uh, regulation of capital movements have decreased. So that if if workers in the United States rebel, maybe there's threats from other workers in other parts of the world. If workers in India rebel, there's a state with a military to repress them, to kill them, uh, in fact, if, if their rebellions get out of hand. And this is what uh, underlies the great resilience of, of capitalism. Uh, you le- people are always talking about the crisis of capital, the crisis. Sometimes crisis is an overused word in the sense that sometimes we think that, well, the crisis is going to get bad enough and surely things will change. Well, they haven't yet. Talk about the owners and the managers in terms of the system, in terms of the class that they represent. Well, their interest, not just primarily, but always, is their bottom line. So that, let's say we look at attempts to regulate the environment. Uh, The world might be largely uninhabitable in 100 years if things continue the way they are with global warming and all kinds of other bad things that are happening uh, to the environment. So then you think, well, isn't that obvious? Things should change. People say that we need to get rid of fossil fuels, and of course that's the case. But there are trillions of dollars worth of fossil fuels in the ground that are owned by energy companies, and they are determined to use every last dollar of that. And indeed, if there's not sort of radical change, which is what I mean by can the working class change the world, not just change it, but change it radically, then they're going to do that. They're going to do that. And all of the meetings that are held in Paris and what have you to to change the environment, if the power of capital stays intact, believe me, that environment is not going to be changed dramatically. That's for sure. Now, what about workers who feel trapped by the system? Let's take, for example, talking about climate disruption, coal miners in West Virginia and uh, Kentucky. They need to feed their families. They have to take care of their aging parents because we have a, an extremely expensive so-called health care system uh, and all the rest, tuition for their kids to go to school. The choices that they're given are extremely narrow. It's work in the mine or fend for yourself. That's a good point. And if you look at it from their point of view, but what I see is like a real failure of the trade union movement in the United States, a real failure to develop a set of principles nationally and globally that would address problems like this. It's certainly the case that they're faced with undesirable, unenviable choices. But surely we could imagine, given all the wealth of the United States, that people who are in precarious positions like that could be taken care of uh, either through other kinds of employment if they're young. Uh, Certainly you look at, say, the Green New Deal, which has become so popular sort of a buzzword now and it can be uh criticized on on many levels but if you think about the possibilities 
of shifting to uh, non-fossil fuel energy. That's in the interest of all workers because certainly who's going to be most affected by these climate changes? It's certainly working people. You see that all the time or peasants. Uh, these big these, This uh, cyclone that hit the countries in Africa. I mean, there's a town of 500,000 people in Mozambique and 70% of that town's been destroyed. Those are all working people and peasants that are going to face the, the most suffering from the rise in sea levels and from global warming. And certainly those miners have faced tremendous uh, problems from the removal of mountaintops that have destroyed their streams and so on and so forth. They like to hunt and fish. They have to be concerned about the environment too. So if they're older miners, certainly we could provide for the rest of their lives. We could have universal health care for one thing, so they wouldn't have to worry about that, and the young people wouldn't have to worry about that either. We could certainly have uh, locally controlled, community controlled energy production through, through solar power, through wind power, and what have you. That could help rejuvenate those communities. So, there, so in the short term, Certainly, we could find ways that those people could be supported and be secure, and all working people could be supported and secure. It's not just coal miners that face those kinds of choices. It's a lot of people that face those kind of choices. And in the long term, we have to have a program to, that's in the interest of all working people so that every union decision, every political party decision has to have the ecology, has to have the ecology and the environment in mind. That's really a critical problem right now because there's not going to be any world to change uh, if we continue along that path. Education is really a critical matter here. How many labor unions, for example? There's still 15 million people in labor unions in the United States. How many unions have education programs that amount to anything? I was a labor educator for a long time, and working people, they always enjoyed what I was saying. They could see that the I way of looking at things the way that the world is looked at by, say, neoclassical economists, didn't fit them the way Marx looked at things did. Now, back in the 80s when I taught in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, I couldn't use the name of Marx. It was a little bit too dangerous, so I called it the workers' theory. They always liked it. They always could see it. So critical education is necessary in every entity that, that engages in an attempt to change the world. They need that education component. Uh, Peter Leinbaugh said the commons has to be taught over and over and over again, and I think that's certainly true. You say there's a fundamental cleavage between working people and their bosses. Talk about that uh, inherent tension. Well, you can see that in, in, any, in any workplace. First of all, your employer has the interest of making of of the employer making money or making a surplus or maintaining control. Like when I was a university professor, the University of Pittsburgh didn't operate on a profit-making basis. But the management always saw the need to control, to maintain their own power, to maintain their own surpluses. And, of course, a lot of colleges make money from patents and so on and so forth. So they're sort of like business entities uh, anyway. And you could, you could just see in any workplace that your interest as a human being, that is your – you start to think, am I – when I look in the mirror in the morning – Am I a cost of production? That's what I used to – one of the things I used to tell my students. Is that the way I think of myself? Well, that's not the way human beings think of themselves. For example, we know that as human beings, we have the capacity to conceptualize things, to conceptualize what we do and to execute it out. Uh, I knew many working people when I worked a couple summers in the factory where my father worked. And outside of work, they were very skilled individuals. 
they could do things. They could fix things. They could fix cars. They could make bicycles. They could do lots of different things. In the workplace, however, they didn't get the power to do that. People see that if they don't see it directly, if they couldn't verbalize it, they feel it. And that's one of the things that really creates the cleavage. I always used to say the essence of management is control of the worker. The worker is the only active agent in production, and the worker's movements literally have to be controlled so that in any given day you get an expected amount of output from an expected amount of labor. Well, people resist that kind of control. Now, they can buy into it a lot of times, and sometimes they do, and it's disheartening, but they can feel it. When push comes to shove, they'll be pushed aside as a, as a result of what the management wants to do. So I think that's the root of the fundamental cleavage. Almost every worker feels it. I know they do. Uh, they might not act on it. Uh, they might say they can't believe it. Uh, they might buy into the system. But in the end, I think they do feel it. And if they didn't feel it, then we wouldn't have labor unions. We wouldn't have labor political parties. We wouldn't have revolts. Sometimes it seems to me it's amazing we have as much dissent as we do. You write about the need to overcome inherent divisions of gender, race, ethnicity, religion, location. That's the big problem, of course. As capitalism develops, there are cleavages and splits in the working class, and sometimes, of course, employers like these splits. I remember once reading that International Harvester back in the early part of the 20th century tried to tried to have a mix of workers. They wanted to have so many so many Italians few blacks, so many Germans, so many this, so many that, because then they would be hostile to one another. Management would play that up. But certainly, divisions, and especially by race and by gender and by part of the world, are really critical cleavages within the working class. And sometimes these, these seem like almost not overcomable, I guess, if I could, if that's a word, especially in the United States, if you look at the cleavage by race, it just seems to go on and on and on and on. It has its roots in slavery, of course. We still have that in the United States, and you see it all the time. Every time you think the progress is being made, you see another noose appear in some workplace. You see racial insults hurled. You would think that we could overcome gender differences, but we don't seem to be able to do that. You see constant assaults of women in workplaces. You see women making less money than men. Of course, you see black people making less money than white people. There are all kinds of subtle kinds of barriers by race and by gender. And, of course, there are also differences between workers in what I call the global north, the, the original advanced capitalist nations and a few others like Japan, for example, and workers in the global south where people are poor, where their labor has supported workers in the north, has supported governments in the north, as tremendous amounts of surplus are, are extracted from those countries and flow to the rich countries of the north. Those are difficult, very difficult uh, cleavages to, to overcome. They have to be overcome if the working class is to change the world, that's for sure. And I think that, in a, that as part of every education program, can, as part of every political party, as part of every labor union, as part of part of every organization that develops an antagonism to capital, you have to have education that revolves around race, gender, uh, the imperial power of the North over the global South. Those are three key cleavages that have to be overcome. For millennia, divide and rule has been a, a mechanism of control by the power elite 
today we see uh, immigrants being uh, scapegoated and blamed for um, various and sundry uh, issues. Oh no, there's no question about that, and 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 it's it's really quite remarkable. We lived in Tucson one time, and we were staying in a, in a cottage that was owned by uh, the people that owned this place, uh, bed and breakfast kind of place. They uh, the man was an artist and his wife they were both very nice people and we were close to the border of mexico and one day when we were talking about immigrants and the the uh, discrimination against immigrants and the hatred of immigrants the woman said but there are neighbors and it just struck me so greatly that when people get to meet immigrants when for example there are the that some labor unions in the united states like the communication workers and some others the electrical workers when you invite workers from mexico to come here or you go there and you start to see that you have things in common then that can help to overcome this but it's a very uh, it's a very interesting and dangerous thing because on the one hand those that assail immigrants are happy to eat the food and restaurants that are produced by those immigrants. They're happy to have immigrants take care of their lawns. They're happy to have immigrants take care of their children, for the love of Pete. Uh, but but this this ideology, this this sense of otherness, these cleavages are bread and butter to capital, bread and butter to politicians like Trump, for example. Uh, I don't see how any working person could support Trump, but some do. Not as many as we're led to believe, but some do. Women's work goes largely unrecognized and unpaid, childbearing and rearing, shopping and cooking and cleaning. What about those issues? I call that reproductive labor. I mean, it's directly reproductive when you have children, but it's reproductive in the sense that it that work done largely by women creates the next workforce. So this is unpaid. Capital gets the labor free of charge. And that's why women's movements, for example, movements that began in the 70s that said you got to be paid for homework, for housework. Uh, th- those were all those are all important things that have to be supported by working people everywhere. Uh, and I think that, as I say, women, minorities, these are going to have to be keys to, to changing the world because their grievances are the greatest. Uh Women are assaulted at work. They're assaulted at home. Uh, their labor is, un, is unrecognized. And and then if you consider labor that women do, which is tied directly to their work at home, for example, most daycare workers are women. They're some of the most underpaid workers in the United States, for example. Uh, women are uh, domestics, domestic servants. Uh, that labor gets unrecognized. But certainly the work in the home that's done free of charge uh, is unrecognized. And uh, although patriarchy, although the dominance of women by men largely predates capitalism, capitalism picked right up on that. And women are sort of like an elastic labor force. That is, when they're needed, they're called into the workforce. Some women have had to work all the time, and they do double jobs. They work at home, and they work uh, in the marketplace. And that's true for a lot of women today. And they're exploited in both of them. But certainly, that labor in the home... It has to be recognized as critical. That has to be part of the working class's movement against capital to change that, to, to make sure that, there, that, that, that that exploitation in the home ends. I mean, there are lots of ways that that could be attacked. For example, I don't see why there aren't daycare centers associated with every workplace. Uh, I don't see why there's not parental leave that lasts a long period of time. I don't see why women can't be guaranteed reentry to the workforce if they have to leave it to take care of their children. 
and it's interesting that poor people are expected to take care of the children or rich people. Uh, we ended, you know, under Clinton, we ended welfare as as we know it, as it was said. And so women are supposed to take jobs taking care of other people's kids while somebody has to take care of their kids too. So that issue of raising children, that issue of the work in the home, that issue that goes unrecognized and unpaid, that's really a critical aspect of any change that's going to happen in this world. Because if we don't have a working class that's unified by by all of these things, if we don't have a working class where these things don't matter anymore, if we don't aim for a society that these things don't matter anymore, then the world's never going to be changed. You're listening to Michael Yates on The Working Class. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and Michael Yates' book, Can the Working Class Change the World?, by calling one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order online on our website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Talk about the centrality of uh, unions. Uh, at its peak, I think maybe 35% of the workforce was unionized in this country. What factors have contributed to the decline of unions? Well, I, I always look at these in terms of uh, external factors and in, internal factors. For example, in the United States, a sort of compromise was worked out between employers and, and unions in, in the late 1940s and exp- uh, expressed importantly by the contract that was worked out with General Motors and the United Auto Workers, where the workers are guaranteed certain increases in wages uh, to match increases in prices and a general improvement factor to raise wages when the productivity of the workers continues to increase. And in return, GM is given complete control over the over their over their capital, and the workers aren't allowed to interfere with that anymore. Sort of a labor management cooperation scheme and in the 1970s, as profits started to fall, as capital faced in the United States faced increasing competition globally, then capital went on the attack, and they began to attack labor. The, all kinds of um, new capitalist-inspired uh, institutions started to form, the Heritage Foundation, uh, lots of different think tanks to promote the interests of capital, and capital began to be, become more willing to attack workers directly. And they got a lot of support from the government when Reagan, for example, fired the air traffic controllers. It marked a big break point in any support that the government might give to, to working people. So those are kind of external things. Uh, I used to work for the United Farm Workers Union, and the union faced decline and demise in the beginning in the 1980s. And some of that was a result of direct attacks by capital and its allies in, in government. But there's a second factor involved, too, and I think this is an internal one. That is to say that unions are class-based organizations quite clearly. They're, they've, they're organizations of working people in opposition to capital and opposition to their employers. But unions themselves, and it shows the great resilience of capital really, they start to, uh, they start to look like, in terms of their structures, their employers. They become hierarchical organizations. Uh, they become methods of advancement for people. And so then you get a stake in staying in power. And then you come into opposition with your rank and file. And I saw that in the Farm Workers Union when I worked for it. Uh, I got to know Cesar Chavez fairly well. I, I lived at union headquarters and uh, I worked for the union. I, I testified in important court cases for the union. And what you saw was that 
the union leadership under Chavez became in direct opposition to the workers when they started to demand some power over their local unions. And some really ugly things happened. And if you saw it there in, in, in what was a union with such great promise, and you look at the auto workers and you see the same thing. There's a book written by, by a guy I know named Greg Shotwell called Auto Workers Under the Gun, where he assails the union as a one-party state. So the willingness to cooperate with employers, the structuring of the union as as unequal entities, as hierarchies, those are internal problems which, which help to lead to the demise of the labor unions. That is, they they give up certain principles, certain class principles that they had before or were essential to their foundations. I mean, after all, radicals were essential to the formation of the CIO in the 1930s. So there are external, internal problems. Both of them combine to weaken the labor movements. And this has happened all around the world. Uh, labor unions are, have become weaker even in the countries where they were strongest, like in the Scandinavian countries, they become weaker. Capital has become stronger. And so that's the way I would look at it, as a combination of external and internal factors. Well, what are the chances to grow unions again? There's always a chance. Well, first of all, there are a lot of rebellions within unions, like in the Teamsters Union and lots of other unions. In the, in the, we see, for example, increases in some, some increases in strikes. You saw the work, the teachers in Los Angeles, for example, striking. You saw teachers in Kentucky and West Virginia striking and really under adverse conditions in those latter two states uh, where, they did, where, where unions aren't really uh, e- even um, given sanction by the state as they are in California. And what you see when, when unions rejuvenate themselves is they make tie-ins to their communities – that is, they begin to see working people as more than just workers for an employer, but as members of communities. And they ally themselves with communities and say, listen, we have to have better schools. We have to have non-fossil fuel mass transit. These are things that we have to have. So you begin to agitate within your communities, within larger structures, and within your workplace. You do what you can in your workplace. Then I think unions have a chance not only to 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 develop where they exist, but to become existent where they're not. And those are the kind of things where you have principles larger than just, say, wages and working conditions, which are always important. I would never deny that. But you take larger issues and you make those central. And you saw that in the Chicago Teachers Union, for example. Uh, That's when unions grow. That's when they become strong. Supreme Court ruling in 2018 weakened public sector unions by prohibiting them from collecting mandatory fees from workers who are covered by union contracts but are not dues-paying union members. Talk about the significance of that. Well, that's essentially right-to-work laws for public employees, what it amounts to. If I'm a worker and I don't join the union and the union bargains for better wages and protections and so on, I get all those benefits but I don't pay anything. Now, some people have argued, and and maybe there's a point to this, that these laws should be a wake-up call to unions to become more democratic, to become more inclusive, so that workers would willingly join and pay the dues. It used to be that uh, union shopsters had to go around and collect dues from people. Uh, Then they got the employers to be able to deduct them from your paycheck automatically. Well, then that sort of removes you as a member from the union itself when the employer is just deducting the dues. You don't even see what's going on. 
So some people have argued that this should be a wake-up call for unions to go back to what they used to be. I mean, if workers around the world could wage strikes and so on and so forth a long time ago, and even sometimes today, without such things and succeed, then there's no reason why they can't do it in the future. But certainly, you see by all of these laws and by all of these court rulings, the aim is to constrict the labor laws so that workers get less protection. It's the same thing with every other kind of law, health and safety laws, for example, overtime laws. I think the Trump administration has engaged in, uh, by fiat, basically, as Trump makes most of his policies by fiat, by presidential decree, uh, overtime provisions for, for, uh, for, for workers who previously had certain rights to overtime. Now they don't have them anymore. So you, you, you can see that capital aims to restrict workers' rights to make them as insecure as possible whenever they can. And so what has to be done is to, try, is to operate outside of those boundaries to the best you can, as unions used to do in the past. Talk about reviving solidarity. You know, the old uh, labor rallying cry of an injury to one is an injury to all. Today, that's kind of morphed into an injury to one is an injury to one. You're on your own, buddy. No, I think that's true. I always think that people like to think of themselves as members of some of, of some community. I mean, somebody said that in Ohio, for example, you used to be able to turn to the unions in all these union towns if you had problems. Now you have to turn to your churches because the unions are, are moribund or non-existent and the industries that used to be there are no longer there. So people want that sense of solidarity. We're social beings uh, after all. Uh, we want to... We, there's a big problem of loneliness in the United States. People feel lonely all the time. They feel alienated all the time. They're taking drugs and alcohol all the time to ease their problems. So I think that it's possible to rebuild that sense of solidarity. It's possible to rebuild that sense of we, but it's certainly a daunting task. And I, I would be the last to deny that an injury to an injury to one is an injury to all is something that a good many people don't think about very much. And they're not willing to take risks. If you look at colleges, for example, there are unions in colleges where tenure teachers have a lot of uh, a lot of power, a lot of rights. But do they care about those adjuncts that are working? My experience is that they didn't. You had to work at that. You had to make them try to see that, well, you got to protect these people because soon enough there won't be any tenured people. But some of the older tenured people would feel, well, I got mine, Jack. Too bad for you. I'll leave and I'll be set. I have a pension. I don't care about you. That has to be worked at. That has to be fought for all the time. The term socialism is getting some attention, and it's particularly uh, strikingly uh, getting very good marks from young people who have a favorable view of it. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say they are democratic socialists. What do you make of their claims and this whole uh, attention now being paid or some attention being paid to socialism? Well, I would say... On the one hand, you, you got to applaud some of the things that Bernie Sanders is saying, and you got to uh, you got to applaud what Ocasio uh, Cortez is saying. You know, they're they're in, they're in favor of uh, Medicare for all, and you can look into the details of that, and you can criticize. But the idea that everybody should have, have health care that, that's a obvious, and fighting for that is good. To say that. Um, the rich are making too much money and they got to be taxed more heavily. That's obviously a good thing to me anyway, and it should be to all working people. So on the one hand, I think what they're saying is good. 
where I would wonder is what they mean by socialism. Uh, I think what they mean basically is the kind of progressive policies you once saw in the Scandinavian countries and in Western Europe. Now, they do exist to a certain extent where you have cradle-to-grave welfare, where education is basically free of charge, where everybody has health care, where there's there's generous parental leaves and all kinds of other other leaves, where elderly people are taken care of. Uh, where there are good pensions and good social security systems. So those are all good things that they're in favor of. To me, what's missing, and maybe that'll come, and hopefully it will, as the Democratic Socialists of uh, the United States, that big organization, DSA, starts to grow as as you see some of these politicians entering Congress. Uh, th- those are all good things, and maybe that'll broaden to – what I consider to be more important, which is direct attacks on the power of capital. Uh, some of these things are, but not not enough. As long as capital owns the means of production, as long as most production is private and not run by the people themselves, then you can make so much headway, but then there are going to be roadblocks. And then con- hopefully the confrontations will be greater. And we'll see that the system can accommodate even these weak things, or not even these weak things, but even these things. Uh, after all, if the kind of democratic socialism that they're talking about could really change the world, it would have. But even in those Scandinavian countries, they're still primarily capitalist. There's still a lot of oppression of immigrants in those countries. There are a lot of problems in those countries. And they had the best chance with union rates of 90 percent or or a little bit less than that with uh, big social welfare. But when that economist Meidner wanted to take the profits of corporations and and turn them into shares so that the workers eventually owned the companies, then capital said no dice. They're not going to do that. And they never did do that. Then they tightened tightened their belt, so to speak, and went on the attack against working people in Sweden. if if the world could move towards what I consider to be an egalitarian kind of society with democratic control uh, of as many aspects of life as possible, with equality in as many aspects of life as possible, uh, with the socialization of, of a lot of consumption like childcare and so on and so forth, if those things could happen as a result of what Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders are for, then that would have happened already, but it didn't happen. So I hope that what happens is that these people provide a, a vehicle for more direct assaults on the power of capital. And so I say that these things are good, but what has to start to happen, and it has happening, is what I call collective self-help. That is, you remember when the Black Panther parties had all Black Panther Party in the United States had those free breakfast, uh, free health screenings, and a whole pile of other things within their communities. That's what I mean by collective self-help. These are the kind of things that have to that have to increase. I give an, an example of Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, where black people there have gained control of land where they began to produce. Or the landless workers movement in, in Brazil, what do they say? Uh, occupy, resist, produce. That is, they occupy land that's not being utilized. They resist attempts to take it back from them, and they begin to produce for themselves. Like the organic agriculture movement in Cuba. Uh, feed the people in Havana with organic production produced locally and in small small plots and and urban gardens and uh, window boxes and what have you on porches. Uh, That's sort of happening in Detroit now and in lots of parts of the world. 
And those are the kind of things, cooperatives, collectives, production inside of capitalism, where you help yourself collectively. That, along with the kind of agitations you see with the democratic socialists and so on, those are the combination of the two uh, really, really, I think, uh, offers the best hope for us. What accounts for Trump's appeal to some parts of the working class? I mean, he's sitting in the White House largely because of the working class voters in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. I, I think what you said about the coal miners in West Virginia probably applies. That is to say, people start to see their lives being attacked. They they see the factories closing. They see their life prospects dimmed. Uh, they see their children using drugs and alcohol. They start to use them. Uh, they get demoralized tremendously. What once was no longer is. It's like an assault on them. And there are no working class organizations to help them out. I said in Ohio, you go to the churches, you don't go to the labor unions like you used to anymore. So they've been abandoned by their class-based organizations. Their worlds have fallen apart. Trump comes along and says he's going to restore that. He's going to make America great again. And I think that has a certain kind of appeal. And in addition to which, since the unions have never adequately addressed problems of uh, all of these divisions for, by race and ethnicity, for example, then you play up the other. You say, well, the immigrants are coming in. They're assaulting our way of life. Uh, it's no good. And Trump plays up to that, too, and that wins some support. Now, the issue will be this, as far as politics in the United States go. Will that support cohere? Will it be maintained? Because Trump is certainly no friend of working people. And surely some people are going to see that. That is, there are, the coal mines are not, have not been rejuvenated. The steel industry hasn't been rejuvenated. Factories are still closing and moving to other parts of the world. Will that support cohere? Some of it will cohere through uh, religious fundamentalism, I think. Trump's big. I don't under, that's sort of hard for me to understand. Uh, we were uh, staying at a place in uh, Colorado Springs. That's one of the most conservative cities in the country. And uh, we were talking to these older women, nice people. They were sort of fundamentalist Christians, and we'd sit there and talk to them. And uh, a woman was talking to us about her dad, who was a general, actually, in the Army. And he sounded like a nice man, and he sounded like she loved him, and so on and so forth. And we said to her, well, how could you support a guy like Trump when he so obviously attacks women, sexually assaults them for the love of Pete? And she said, well, we're all sinners. He's a work in progress. Now, as long as people have an attitude like that, some of that support will cohere. But I have to think that some of it will disintegrate. And then if we just look at politics in the United States, it'll depend upon what the Democrats have to offer, uh, what other parties have to offer. Uh, I think a lot of working people thought, well, is Hillary Clinton going to help us? Is, I doubt it. She's calling us disposables or whatever that bad word that she she used during the campaign. Is she going to Deplorable. Deplorables, that's it. <laughs> We're all disposables, I suppose. Yeah, deplorables, that's what she said. So they look at her, and she said, the coal mine jobs are going to disappear. She said that. Didn't she say that in West Virginia? I mean, how stupid could she be? So you look at that, and you say, ah, don't like it. Let's vote for this guy. Uh, he's saying what we want to hear. He plays on our basest motives our basest instincts. And, I, I, you know, I think that appeals to some people. I don't think it'll cohere, but I could be wrong. Talk about the future of work and the working class, given the onset of artificial intelligence and more and more automation. What's the workplace going to look like? Well, you know, I'm a little bit uh, s skeptical. Of course, 
there's going to be automation there always has been and there's probably it's probably going to it's probably going to increase and so that a lot of jobs are going to become mechanized and automated that weren't before but but if you just look at at the data for example right now uh, a really large number of people engage in the following kinds of activity auto workers secretaries administrative assistants office support personnel clerks restaurant workers security employees custodians and medical workers they make up about 63 million jobs in the united states 45% of the workforce so there's still a lot of a lot of ordinary work out there if you look at things globally the most amazing statistic i saw is that in the world there are 866 million farm workers that's quite incredible. That's almost a billion people. They're farm workers. Now, are they going to be automated out of their work? Uh, are they going to be replaced by robots? I really doubt it. So I think for a long time to come, the workforce is always changing, always becoming more diverse, more split up, more global. But I don't think that it's going to change, with it, certainly not within our lifetimes anyway, and certainly not within the lifetimes of the next generation, such that everybody's redundant and work is done by robots. I, th- I think that's a myth because what's always happened in the past is when workers are pitched out of work, they become members of what's called a, of like a reserve army of labor and then capital exploits that so that they have jobs that require a lot of cheap labor. Uh, and I think globally that's going to be the case for some time to come. And in, in, even in the United States, I don't anticipate uh, workers. And then the other myth is that everything's going to be high-skilled. If, if you looked at the, the jobs that are expected to have the highest increases in employment in the United States, here are some of the four largest. Personal health aides, food preparation and serving workers, health care support, and productive services. These are going to have the biggest job growth in terms of numbers. Maybe not in terms of percent, but in terms of numbers. And these are also the lowest paid. Now, if you think about that for a minute, we're not talking about people that are going to be replaced by robots here. Some of them will be, of course, but not all. Answer the question posed in the title of your book. Can the working class change the world? It can. First of all, I think that every organization that wants to change the world has to have a statement of principles. They have to be radical principles, and every organization has to have them. I think that every organization has to have an education component, as I described before. I think that fundamental changes have to be made primarily in the way we produce food, the way we deal with the land. Uh, agriculture in the United States uses a tremendous amount of uh, fossil fuels. It's a big polluter. Uh, we produce food in what Kerry McWilliams called in the 1930s, factories in the fields. Uh, we produce livestock under unconscionable conditions. Our food is adulterated to an extreme degree, and nutrients are reduced from it. We use the land in such a way that it's lost its elasticity. You have to provide more and more pesticides to get the same increase in output as you got before. And that's ruinous to the environment, ruinous to our health besides, ruinous to the health of the people that work. So I think there has to be massive changes in agriculture. We've got to deal with the issues of race, gender, and the the split between the global north and the global south, what some people call imperialism. We have to engage in massive forms of collective self-help, I think, as I've described and as, as is occurring around the world now. Unions, political parties, these have to be radically restructured. Now, if we had the combination of all of these, then it's possible that the working class might change the world. I have, what did uh, Gramsci say, a pessimism of the intellect, an optimism of the will. I try to maintain that optimism of the will, even as my brain <laughs> tells me things are 
hell in a handbasket. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, David, it's been a pleasure to be here. You were just listening to Michael Yates on The Working Class. I talked with him in Boulder, Colorado. Michael Yates is editorial director of the Monthly Review Press, and he's the author of Can the Working Class Change the World? This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Dar Jamel, Shoshana Zuboff, Dana Frank, Ilan Pape, Leilani Farha, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Michael Yates on the Working Class, and his book, Can the Working Class Change the World? Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to KGNU. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Director Entity, our launch team is ready to proceed at this time. Go for launch. GC. Go. Guidance. Go. Fido. Go. Prop. Go. GNC. Go. Max. Go. Eagle. Go. Go. You know what that sound means. It's my sound. Broadcasting to you live from Treaty 7 lands, you're listening to CJSW 90.9 in Calgary.
Good afternoon, comrades. You are tuned into my socialist choir on CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Kate Jacobson, and this is the radio program that spotlights and highlights music made by the people for the people. We are broadcasting to you live from the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 people here in southern Alberta, as well as the home of the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This is going to be the last broadcast of this program for quite a while, for the foreseeable future. I have accepted a new job, can no longer have Wednesdays noon to 2 off, and will be hanging up my radio headphones for a little while, which means we are going to be having a hell of a fun time together on the radio today playing us in my 